Well, I see you all are seated. That's great. We're going to spend some time this morning in Acts 2. Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Tom Allworth, and I serve as an elder here at Harvest. And this is our third installment in our elder-led summer preaching series. And this morning, I'm going to start off with a real-life tragedy. April 5th, 2010. At the Upper Big Branch Mine in West Virginia, at 3.02 p.m., an explosion rocked the mine and became the second deadliest coal mine disaster in United States history, killing 29 miners. It was a tragic day that impacted a whole community forever, but it never should have happened. I'm a mechanical engineer by trade, and in my job, every year I have federally required mine safety training in case I happen to spend some time at a mine. The past few years, a topic that has come up during this training is the responsibility of mine owners for what happens on their mine property. When a serious accident occurs, the mine owner can be held personally responsible, even if they were not at the mine at the time the accident occurred, if it can be shown that there were willful violations or gross, gross negligence. The investigation that followed the Upper Big Branch mine accident found 253 safety violations. Years later, a number of executives and officials in the Upper Big Branch parent company went to prison for conspiring to hide known safety issues from the government's mine health and safety inspectors. There's a phrase that gets used in the yearly safety training to simplify the intent of the law related to this. It goes like this. If the mine owner or supervisor knew or should have known about an unsafe condition, they can be held personally responsible. If they knew or should have known, that covers a lot of ground really fast. They should have known all the laws that apply to their mine site. We're going to see in the second half of Acts 2 this morning that Peter is going to give evidence for who this Jesus really is based on the facts of Jesus' life and what God had revealed in the Old Testament. Peter's going to show that they knew or should have known who this Jesus was. Peter's going to elevate this Jesus in the eyes of his audience from merely a guy born in Nazareth to the king over all creation. Last week in the first half of Acts, uh, in the first half of Acts 2, George Bennett taught about Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the beginning of Peter's response to the people about what was going on. In verses 17 to 21, Peter quoted the prophet Joel to show that what had happened, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire, the speaking in different languages, all of these signs of the pouring out of God's Spirit ushered in the Messianic age. The Messianic, Messianic age, what is it? Well, it refers to the time between when the Messiah comes the first time and when he comes back the second time. In today's passage, Peter goes on to explain that if the Messianic age is here, there must be a Messiah. Peter's sermon brings a compelling, well-reasoned, logical argument to the people that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Christ, the Savior that they've been waiting for. Write this down as your first point 1A. Who is this Jesus? This Jesus is God's chosen one. Let's jump into the text. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In verse 22, Peter starts with Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Nothing earth-shattering, nothing controversial, yet. Jesus was from Nazareth. Nazareth. He was a man. Peter starts with the common understanding of who Jesus was. Everyone in Jerusalem had heard about him and heard at least some of the things he had done. During Jesus' life and ministry, the response of some to the mighty works and wonders and signs was to glorify God. In Luke 7, when Jesus raised the widow's son, the people glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And yet the response of others, most notably many of the religious leaders, was to attribute what they saw to Satan, the prince of demons. They rejected the work of God in Jesus' life and ministry. Back in John 10, Jesus is in the temple, and there was a crowd of Jews gathered around him asking, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. To which Jesus responds, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered him, them, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him. Very likely, some listening to Peter in Acts 2 agreed that God's hand was at work in Jesus' life, and they wondered what had gone wrong. Others likely bristled at the idea that Jesus was sent from God and had the word blasphemy going through their minds. The miracles were meant to prove who Jesus was, that God endorsed him. They should have been enough. The Jews knew, or they should have known. In verse 23, Peter moves on. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's plan includes the suffering and death of Jesus. This wasn't an accident or God making a mistake, as some supposed. Even Peter, earlier on, didn't really see Jesus' death as a part of God's plan. In Mark 8, Jesus is with his disciples And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. No, Peter, you don't have it right. You're not seeing things the way God does. This has been the plan all along. You need saving, and this is the way it will happen. The Savior sacrifices himself. Just like the ram stuck in the bushes was revealed to Abraham at the right time to take Isaac's place as a sacrifice in Genesis 22, Jesus is revealed here as God's planned payment for sin. This Jesus being crucified was no accident. It was God's salvation plan all along. 
They didn't recognize the one that they were waiting for. Not only that, they rejected him. Not only that, they called him an enemy of God. And not only that, they had him killed. Yet it was God's plan. This Jesus let them hand him over. He let the Romans beat and crucify him. Matthew 26, Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? Jesus knew what was going to happen, all according to what God had already said throughout the Old Testament. And he went through with it for the purpose of bringing many back into relationship with God. Let's pause here for a few things. Verse 23 is one of those verses that has side by side the sovereign providence of God, that God's plan cannot be thwarted, right alongside human responsibility. God had this planned. You killed him. You're responsible. This is difficult to wrap our minds around, but it is so consistent throughout Scripture. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is another great example, and there are many others, and many theologians have written about this at length. But that's not the main point today, so I'm not going to dwell there. The second thing I want to point out is that, is, is this really have anything to do with us 2,000 years later? We weren't there. We didn't support Jesus' crucifixion or mock him as he died. Well, yes, that's true. But we all face the same choice of whether or not to reject him as son of God based on what he has revealed to us. It's not that different than Peter talking to the crowd of 3,000 plus on that day. Not all of them personally handed Jesus over to the Romans. Surely some of them couldn't really quite wrap their minds around what this Jesus guy was all about. And they didn't think he was all that bad after all. In Luke 11:23, Jesus says that whoever is not with me is against me. It's not enough to think that Jesus isn't so bad. Not agreeing with the whole truth of who God says he is, is rejecting him. There were a whole lot in that crowd that day that had decided that Jesus either was an enemy of God and rightly crucified, or someone amazing, but not the Messiah, since he got himself killed. Just like the Jews listening to Peter, if you don't agree with who God says Jesus is, then you are rejecting him. Back at the end of verse 23, it says, You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men, yet God's plan can't be thwarted, as verse 24 indicates. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Write this down as 1B. Who is this Jesus? This Jesus is God's promise kept. God provides a Savior with a lot of mighty works as evidence. The Jews kill him. And how does God respond? You killed him. God raised him up, Peter says. God undid your evil. He raised him up. Our plans don't get the final say, and neither does death. God has the final say. The NIV translates loose the pangs of death in verse 24 as freeing him from the agony of death. And I think this is helpful at communicating the idea. In the Jewish way of thinking, um, the state of being dead, having your spirit separated from your body, that itself was agony. That all ended when God the Father raised him up and gave him a new resurrection body. It wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death after all. 
Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. The power of God, true life, is more than the power of destruction and death. The death that man brought into the world by sin is no match for the life that is God. Now Peter's going to move on to some proof from the Old Testament prophecy in Psalms that Jesus' resurrection was part of the plan all along and that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter's quoting Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And now he's going to explain how this supports his argument that Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to key in on verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy, see, holy one see corruption. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. An undeniable fact. Peter's building his argument on what is known and can be verified. King David, in fact, died. He was buried, and they could go visit his tomb if they wanted to. Maybe some of them already had. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Let's pause. His listeners knew their Old Testament. They knew that in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that one of his descendants would be king on the throne forever. And it's reinforced in Psalm 132, in Psalm 89, where it repeats this promise, saying, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This promised forever king, he wasn't going to stay dead. So a pro being a prophet, in verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witness. God made some promises to David in the Old Testament, and now he's keeping them. David wrote that God revealed to him that the Christ, namely, what David, as a prophet of God, wrote what God revealed to him about the Christ, namely that he wouldn't stay dead. To Peter's Jewish audience, the Holy One that David speaks of in Psalm 16 would have been a well-understood reference to the Christ, the Messiah. These terms are interchangeable, meaning the same thing. God's anointed one, God's chosen one. So God raised up Jesus. He's not in the grave. The tomb is empty. You can go verify this, Peter is saying. And you can ask any of the 120 of us here that are gathered. We're all witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Notice that Peter says David foresaw the resurrection of Christ. Yet the Jews who had seen the mighty works, the signs and the wonders, who had all of the Old Testament prophets, they couldn't see it. They should have known. Write this down as your next point. Who is this Jesus? He is king over all. Next, Peter moves on to answer the question, so where is this forever king that God raised up? If he is Messiah, why don't we see him here? Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Ah, there he is. 
Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Sorry, not only had been raised from the dead as prophesied, but raised up, exalted. He ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of God. Jesus is now exalted at the right hand of God. This is a place of power and authority, the right hand of God. And being in this position of authority and power, Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. In doing so, he's fulfilling his own words in Luke 24 and Acts 1, where he tells his disciples he is sending the promise of his Father, namely the Holy Spirit, upon them. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high, Jesus tells them. The Holy One, the Christ, the Messiah has come. His suffering and death were God's plan. The ransom has been paid. Redemption is here. And he gives one more evidence for who Jesus is. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Peter is quoting Psalm 110, verse 1 here. David didn't go into heaven. This isn't talking about him, Peter says. This Jesus, whom God raised up and exalted, sitting in power and authority at the right hand of God, he will have all of his enemies utterly submitted to him. There will be no more rebellion. No more resistance to God's rightful rule of the universe. All things will be at complete peace throughout heaven and earth and under the earth, under the lordship and authority of Jesus. Peter interprets this verse along the same lines as Jesus did in Matthew 22. Jesus asked the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus said to them, well, how is it then that David is in the spirit, calls him Lord? If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the Pharisees didn't know what to say. They couldn't understand. Peter answers the question the Pharisees and religious leaders weren't able to answer. Who is this Lord in Psalm 110.1? It's none other than this Jesus, the king over all. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The point of Peter's whole sermon is to leave no doubt. To leave no doubt about who this Jesus is. He wants his audience to know for certain. Well-reasoned evidence doesn't make faith less meaningful. It makes it possible. It strengthens it. It clears up wrong thinking. Someone once said, The heart cannot believe that which the mind rejects. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is active trust. So I want to take a step back for a moment and recap the progression of what Peter has taken his audience through so far. I imagine it a bit like Peter starting in verse 22 with a small balloon. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. But no, he wasn't just a man. Peter inflates the view of Jesus with, this, with the mighty works, the wonders, the signs, all endorsed by God. This Jesus, he says, is God's redemptive plan. Jesus' crucifixion and death for your salvation. Then God raises him back to life. And he adds in the fulfillment of prophecy. This Jesus is the forever king in the line of David. It just keeps getting bigger. And the, and the fulfillment of prophecy of the resurrection of the Christ. 
He wasn't just anyone that came back to life. He's the Holy One, the Christ, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for to bring them freedom. Yes, this Jesus, this mighty works, died to save you, raised from the dead, prophecy fulfilling, forever king, the one you've been waiting for, it's this Jesus, this exalted, seated at the right hand of God in heaven with all authority and power, who will crush all his enemies beneath his feet, this Jesus, this is the Jesus whom you crucified. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter's preaching proved effective. The logic was persuasive and the Holy Spirit convicted their consciences of the wrong they had done in rejecting and killing Jesus because of their rebellion. Their response is appropriate. What shall we do? We are guilty. What hope is there for us for this horrible thing that we have done? Peter's response must have been unspeakably reassuring. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Write this down as point two. In light of who Jesus is, what shall we do? Turn to God in faith. Now, there's a lot packed into verse 38. Let's go back for a moment to where Peter started his sermon, talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. The context of the passage in Joel 2 is God's judgment and his mercy. Have a look. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is the hope that Peter is holding out to the Jews that he's preaching to. Judgment Day isn't going to be pretty if you're one of God's enemies. He is king. He has authority. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart. Repent. What does it mean to repent? John Piper, in reference to this passage, says this. Repentance is not just regret. They had already been cut to the heart. And now Peter says, repent. So repentance is more than feeling sorry. It means following through on that conviction and turning around. Changing your mind and your heart so that you are no longer at odds with God, but in sync with God. It's not just feeling sorry. I hope you get that. You don't stop being a rebel by feeling sorry about your rebellion and then continuing on with it. No, you stop being a rebel by renouncing that way of living, by completely turning away from it. As Acts 26, 18 puts it, turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. It is a reversal of the direction of your life. Look a little more closely at verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Is this verse saying that forgiveness of sins is a result of repentance and baptism? In other words, can a person be truly saved without being baptized? Sometimes this verse is used to argue that that is the case. Pastor Ryan addressed this two weeks ago as well, but let me add to what he said with what we see in the rest of Acts. Back in Acts 2.21, Peter quoted Joel with these simple words, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In Acts 10.43, Peter concludes his sermon to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house saying, to Jesus all prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then to confirm what is really essential for receiving forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. In Acts 15.9, when Peter tells about his ministry to the Gentiles, he says, God made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. In Acts 16, when the earthquake freed Paul and Silas from prison and neither of them ran away, the jailer cried out, Men, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There are many many other places in the New Testament we could turn besides Acts to demonstrate That salvation is by faith alone. But for this morning, I will just say that baptism is best understood as the outward sign of the inward work that God has already done in saving by faith. The thief on the cross had no opportunity to be baptized, yet Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. Baptism is not necessary for salvation then, but it is necessary if we're going to be obedient to Christ, since he commanded that baptism for all that put their trust in him. It is an act of obedience that should follow genuine conversion, a statement to the world of allegiance to Christ. Now back to verse 38 one more time. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This verse offers great hope to all of us. We are those that are far off. And even if you are the worst of sinners, if you are a murderer of the Son of God, like the Jews that Peter was talking to, God stands ready to forgive. Not only that, to give his spirit. This is another promise you can count on. It's not just forgiveness of sins that is offered. It is God's own spirit given to us to complete his work of changing us to think and act like him. And we see again in verses 38 and 39, Peter putting our responsibility and God's sovereignty right next to each other. Repent and be baptized. You're responsible to take these steps of obedience. Yet it is the Lord our God who calls those who turn to him into relationship. It's the Holy Spirit's work. It's both. God calling, our responding. Now consider for a moment the people that Peter is talking to. Jerusalem is the center of Jewish religious life. It is where the temple is. It is where the main feasts and ceremonies happen, where the most prestigious rabbinic schools would have been. Peter describes his audience back in verse 5 as devout men from every nation. I don't think it's too much speculation to say that these were respectable Jews. The religious ones, observing the Feasts of Weeks as instituted in Exodus 23 at this time, they're sincere. 
And yet, all of the religious practices, all of the outward rituals had not changed their hearts. It had not opened their eyes. They had still rejected Jesus. They knew, or they should have known. I bring this up because it can be dangerously similar in our own day in a few ways. Within the church, in our country, there is danger of knowing the facts about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, of playing along with the churchy things, of serving in this way or that, but not actually putting any trust in Jesus to save, not actually turning away from the love of sin and self, and in no way seeking to obey Christ. I grew up going to church. Around the middle of high school, I decided that if I was going to be a Christian, I needed to own it. I needed to get serious about it. So I started doing more Christian-y things, reading the Bible regularly, praying every day, talking to some of my friends about Jesus. Not bad things in themselves. But I will tell you that it wasn't because I suddenly loved or trusted God more. It was not because I saw more clearly that Jesus was the risen king, worthy of all my worship. It was because I thought, in some way, that the main thing about being a Christian was how you acted and what you did. Yes, yes, Jesus died for my sins. Now it's my job to be good so God will be happy with me. Or so I thought. In fact, I distinctly recall comparing myself to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 when I was in high school and finding myself pretty close to perfect. In another few years, I thought, I'll have gotten over this little bit of pride that I've got, and I probably won't struggle with much of anything anymore. Not only did I not know myself well at that time, but what I learned years later was that my heart was set on doing good so that I wouldn't have to trust God. And I thought, I wanted to be in control, and I thought that the main thing was good behavior. I didn't realize in high school that sin infected every part of my heart, all of my motivations, all of my thinking, all of my doing. Sin wasn't just about the most noticeable things I did. I couldn't just do good things to please God. Theologian Wade Gruden speaks of the danger in this way. While a genuine Christian who sins does not lose his, his or her justification or adoption before God, there needs to be a clear warning that mere association with an evangelical church and outward conformity to accepted Christian patterns of behavior does not guarantee salvation. It's not just about the doing. A consistent pattern of disobedience to Christ coupled with a lack of the elements of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, such as love, joy, peace, and so forth, is a warning signal that the person is probably not a true Christian inwardly, that there probably has been no genuine heart faith from the beginning and no regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. One of my kids recently asked me, what is the scariest story in the Bible? I turn to Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
In that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some people think, or some people going to church and doing churchy things, think that those things are what makes them pleasing to God. But they will find out they are wrong in the worst possible way. That is the scary thing. And it will be a real-life tragedy. I don't wish that on anyone. The doing of good things is not the main thing. And Jesus says many are fooled by that. The Jews in Peter's day were. Verse 21 says, It is the, it is the one who does the will of my Father who will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is the will of the Father? I believe John 6, 28-29 has the answer. Then they said to him, What must we do? to be doing the works of God. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. The crowd in John 6 had it a bit mixed up too, like I did. They thought the main thing was the doing. What works do we have to do? Jesus graciously points them back to where it all needs to start. Believe in the one God sent, Jesus. Start at square one. Truly trusting that there is nothing that you can do to please God apart from trusting the salvation work Jesus has already done on your behalf. Once you are there, once that has sunk in, then everything changes. The way of thinking changes. The motivation, the Spirit of God dwelling within. And out of those changes come the good works that are truly pleasing to God because they are based on trust in Him. Last week, George mentioned that the fruit of the Spirit is a sort of measuring stick that we can use to measure our spiritual growth as followers of Jesus. Do you see growth in love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness in your life? What about goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Well, truth is, you might not be able to give an honest assessment. Better yet, why don't you ask someone who knows you well if they've seen you growing in these over time? It's really hard to manufacture joy and patience and kindness when you're in the middle of something difficult. That's why James 1 says that trials of many kinds lead to maturity. They help us see more clearly who we really are and allow the Holy Spirit opportunity to sanctify us. Now, I understand that each of us struggle in many ways, and that on any particular day, it might be one of those down days, and there might not be much fruit to see. I get that. But if you look at the general trajectory of your spiritual growth, if you look back one year or five years or ten years, is there growing godliness? If you don't see growth in any of these, if no one does, Consider whether you actually trust God in any meaningful way. I'm not saying this to cause any genuine follower of Jesus to doubt their salvation. My intention is that if you are sitting here, and if you have been playing church, just going along because your family goes, 
or whatever the reason might be, or if you never understood what it means to truly trust God, I hope that my words this morning would wake you up to reality. You may fool me, or your parents, or your friends, or your spouse, or even yourself, but there is no fooling God. You cannot pretend to be a sheep before the shepherd. He knows his own because he calls each one. He is king over all, and there is no place you can hide from him, including the thoughts and intentions of your heart. What you truly believe shows up in what you do. It shows up in your character, in your fears, in your motivations, in your feelings, and in your attitudes. What you believe about yourself, what you believe about God and his word, whether you believe that you can be good enough and don't need God, or you believe that Jesus is in fact the only way to restore relationship with God, those beliefs inform whether you repent and turn back to God, or whether you make a go of it on your own in rebellion to what God has revealed. Have you recognized how far short you fall? That you don't measure up? Have you repented and turned to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you truly trust the risen King as your only hope? If you're not sure, or you have questions about what that means, I invite you to talk with Pastor Ryan or one of the elders after the service. For those of you that are Christ followers, how are your beliefs informing your motivations and actions? Do you believe that you personally have been commissioned to communicate the gospel to the people around you? Do you believe the Holy Spirit is with you when you turn a conversation with your coworker or neighbor from trivial things towards spiritual things? Do you believe that God can use your story and what you already know as part of his plan to bring the lost to him? Do you believe it's not your job to finally convince someone of the truth of the gospel? That it's God who changes hearts. How we answer those questions, what we believe to be true, leads to how we think and act. It determines whether we open our mouths when an opportunity for spiritual conversation comes, or we don't. So I encourage you to remember who this Jesus is. This miracle-working salvation working, risen king, this gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, God, who pleads with us to return to him with all our heart, for our hearts easily stray. This is exactly why Peter here in Acts 2 is making such a strong, well-reasoned argument for who Jesus actually is. He wants his listeners to change what they believe and turn away from their rejection their blindness, and their rebellion, and be saved and receive the Holy Spirit. Now let's finish up verses 40 and 41. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What Luke records here in Acts 2 isn't all that Peter said. There was more explaining. There was more exhorting. That's the funny word. Exhorting. It is to urge by strong, often stirring argument, admonition, or appeal. 
It's what I've been trying to do this morning. Save yourselves, Peter says. Here's your opportunity. Don't miss it. This Jesus, who you thought was just a man, is in fact the chosen one, the fulfillment of prophecy, the king over all. And what happened was, the church exploded from 120 to over 3,000 in a day. This was clearly the work of God through the Holy Spirit. They received Peter's words. They believed what he said by faith. They repented. They turned from their rebellion. They believed the truth about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That it was the means of God's forgiveness. And in obedience, they proclaimed their allegiance to Jesus by being baptized. I'm going to wrap up with three quick principles for evangelism that we can take from this passage. First, know your audience. Know your audience. Now, it turns out Peter already knew his audience. So this is kind of like the before we even get to this passage part of it. That's what we're drawing it from. Because Peter used to be one of them, or he is kind of, you get, you get what I'm saying. He was, but he, now he's not. He knew their background. He knew how they generally thought. He didn't have to do much investigation to be able to speak to the issues at hand. More than likely, you're going to need to ask some questions to find out what someone believes, even if there's someone in your own family. So learn to listen well, not so that you can just figure out what to say next, but to listen for what someone values, actually caring about them as a person with an eternal soul, not as an evangelism project. This takes practice, listening like that, loving like that. I need practice at this. And whenever possible, look for common ground. Peter did this. He appealed to the Old Testament, which he knew his audience believed to be God's word. Look for common ground if you can. Second, get to Jesus. Who Jesus is, is in fact the crux of the matter. What's a crux? It's the central point. This is where the conversation has to go at some point. As George said last week, there may be secondary issues that need to be dealt with first. But who Jesus is, is the central message. And the central difference between Christianity and Islam and Hinduism and Mormonism and humanism and every other ism. Peter gets there very quickly because of all the common ground and understanding who God is that he has with those listening. It might take you longer than Peter. In fact, we see this with Paul later in Acts, where he, week after week, goes back to the synagogue to explain who Jesus is. It might take quite a few conversations, but aim for Jesus. Jesus is the center of the hope that we have. And last, be ready to respond. In Peter's case, they received what he said, and they wanted to know how to be forgiven. Do you know how to answer if someone asks what they must do to be saved? That might not be the response you get, though. 
you might get a very negative response. Or you might encounter an apathetic person. Or maybe a, well, that might be true for you, but not for me, kind of a dialogue. What to do then? How do you respond? Let me recommend to you to pray for wisdom in that moment. You can ask something like, what led you to that conclusion? To continue the conversation and listen well to their answer. Or if you're not sure how to respond, then be honest. It does no good to try and fake your way through a conversation with someone. So be honest. I'm not sure how to respond, but can we talk about it another time? Then keep praying and seek out answers and look for a time to follow up with them. And remember that in the end, it is not only clever words, or it, it is not any clever words that will bring someone to Christ, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit. So as the worship team comes up, I'm going to have a few closing words here. This Jesus that Peter describes is worthy of our trust. Every one of his promises are true. He is the risen king. May the greatness of our God motivate us toward greater godliness. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. May you continually be made greater in our eyes as we get to know you better. You are the eternal king, forever reigning over all. And we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.